0: This is The View From Somewhere, a podcast about journalism with a purpose. I'm Ramona Martinez, the producer. This podcast is serialized, so if you like what you hear, go back and listen from the start. You can find full transcripts of these episodes at viewfromsomewhere.com. Also, we're currently fundraising to get to the end of our season, and we need you to chip in. If you value what we're doing here and want to be part of making it possible— go to viewfromsomewhere.com and click on the Donate button. By way of warning, this episode contains sounds of gunshots and explosives. Thank you, and enjoy the show.
1: Basically, my life had become a Google fest. Learn about a rad journalist, Google them, get all the books, try to find them... I was Googling away when I came across Carrie Grusin in this 1969 Wall Street Journal article. The headline, Journalists, Objectivity and Activism. All right, yeah. Objectivity is a myth, declared Grusin, a 21-year-old reporter at the Raleigh News and Observer. During an October protest against the US war in Vietnam, she put on a black armband and walked out of her job as a reporter while millions of people were demonstrating across the country. She ended up in this 1969 Wall Street Journal article because her parents were basically journalism royalty. Her mother, Flora Lewis, was a famous correspondent and columnist for the Washington Post and then Newsday, and her father, Sidney Grusin, was a high-up executive at the New York Times. He had forbidden his employees from participating in this same protest. And this article is a debate about objectivity and the war between father and daughter. I love it. I later learned that Grusin stuck with journalism, moved to Boston, and she also stuck with her anti-war views. As the U.S. began to withdraw from the war, she felt strongly that the aftermath wasn't being covered well enough so in 1974 she said goodbye to the man she was in love with lined up freelance gigs with the globe and the chicago tribune and set off for vietnam she would never make it there the scars left by the war transformed her in ways she couldn't possibly have expected This is The View From Somewhere, a podcast about journalism with a purpose. I'm Lewis Raven-Wallace. On the last couple episodes, we learned about how objectivity was only really codified in the 1920s and 30s. But by the 1960s, those codes were facing widespread challenges. Young reporters were going to cover civil rights or anti-colonial uprisings, going to Vietnam. And a lot of them didn't want neutrality, they wanted justice. Today we'll hear stories from a couple of those idealistic reporters, Carrie Grusin and Laura Palmer, who believed in the power of journalism, but also learned during Vietnam just how complicated truth seeking can be and how reality can shape us as much as we shape reality. I have a bunch of my own questions about how we serve the truth even if we don't believe in one objective truth.
2: Um, I started Oberlin College in 68. I went to every anti-war protest in Washington, D.C. Um, and I you know, was deeply opposed to the Vietnam War.
1: Laura Palmer came of age in a hot moment. During her senior year of high school, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated then Robert Kennedy. The Tet Offensive also happened. The U.S. was amping up its presence in Vietnam, sending her classmates off to fight this war.
2: I mean, we were gonna end the war. We were gonna find a cure for cancer. Feminism, I mean, the environment. I mean, we were on fire, and um, it was an extraordinary time.
1: She was having a moment that some privileged kids come to. I had this around the same age, when you realize that what you've been told about democracy and fairness is a lie.
2: I lived in the glass house of idealism that Camelot built, and when it was shattered, I ran into the streets.
1: Laura was idealistic and angry, but also serious about her future.
2: My plan was that I was gonna go to law school and get Black Panthers out of jail.
1: And then plans changed. The summer before her senior year of college, she started dating a doctor that she met hitchhiking on the interstate, like you do. They fell in love and decided to travel together after she graduated.
2: So I thought it, you know, maybe we would go to Africa or maybe we would go to India. I never thought of Vietnam. Uh, so when he called me, he was—I was home working as a cocktail waitress to make some money. And he called at 2 in the morning and said, I have a job offer for six months in Saigon. Do you want to go? And I said, absolutely. I said, yes. Um, I'm someone who, while I've never had a plan for my life, um, I've always been curious. And if a door opens, I'll go through. And if something sounds exciting, I'll say yes.
1: So that was how she ended up in the hot streets of Saigon in 1972 speaking no Vietnamese with virtually no job experience. And shocker, she and the doctor broke up, and suddenly she was looking for work. She ended up interviewing for media jobs. She had done a brief internship at NBC on the copy desk, but that was it for journalism experience.
2: I could only answer no to every question. How, uh, do you have any experience in journalism? No, not really. Did you major in journalism? No, uh, do you speak Vietnamese? No, do you know anything about the military? No, do you speak French? Because there was a lot of, as a former colony, a lot of French being spoken. I said, no, I don't. I studied Spanish and um, I had absolutely um, no qualifications. Although I did throw in that I had been a copy boy at NBC.
1: She was getting a lot of no's. But eventually she got an offer from ABC News to be a radio stringer. She thinks she got the gig because the New York Times was in the middle of a sex discrimination lawsuit, so ABC needed a token woman reporter.
2: The first thing the bureau chief said to me when I started working in the Saigon Bureau for ABC News, he sat me in front of him at his desk and he looked at me and he said, I just want you to know that of all the applicants, you were the least qualified.
1: Whatever. Anyhow, she was smart and quick and dove right into the job covering the official war story according to the war's leaders.
2: I started doing the, the daily things, like going to the military briefings and reporting you know, that it would be, the, we called them the five o'clock follies, because the South Vietnamese government would talk about um, all the things they, the other side was doing, and they, of course, were culpable for nothing.
1: Laura believed in the possibility of reporting truth objectively, but reporting in Vietnam was complicated. Depending on whom you ask, the Vietnam War was either a victory for objectivity or the end of objectivity. People on the left tend to see the former, a courageous press cut through government propaganda to bring home the story of an unjust war. People on the right tend to see Vietnam reporting as the end of objectivity. Anti war reporters like Laura Palmer were a biased influence that turned people against the war, making it unwinnable. And there were all the limitations of reporting at all on guerrilla warfare with no clear war front, taking in propaganda from both sides. By the time Laura Palmer was in Saigon, public opinion in the U.S. largely had turned against the war, and the U.S. was trying to reduce its presence. But there was still reporting to be done, In January 1973, President Richard Nixon announced a ceasefire.
0: For the purpose of announcing that we today have concluded an agreement to end the war and bring peace with honor in Vietnam and in Southeast Asia. The following statement is being issued. Not long after this speech,
1: Palmer got her first assignment that took her beyond the press briefings, the basic he said, he said stuff. She flew to Tanmi Island in a chopper to interview some of the last combat GIs in Vietnam. She recalls it looking like a summer camp with little bungalows and big sandy beaches. Her army chaperone disappeared and suddenly she was alone with about a dozen men.
2: I was interviewing soldiers who were... Who didn't want to go home, and they were not happy about the news of the ceasefire. And the interviews were really um, dark and disturbing. It was, I don't want to go home. I've been having a blast, killing dinks, chasing gooners. You know, never had a shot to saw somebody in half as he was running down the road, but I sure taught. You know, I sure shot at a bunch of them. Um,
1: It was not quite what she expected. She was anti-war, after all, and figured people would be celebrating getting to go home. But these guys on the front lines didn't want the war to be over. How to do justice to that in a radio spot?
2: So, you know, taking a... taking a 20-second clip of that would have been so misrepresentative of what these men were really saying. Uh, I think they found someone who said, you know, they used a little bit of it, but nothing in depth. Maybe someone said, no, I just wish I could stay here and finish out my tour, and I lost a lot of buddies, or something that was very neutral. Um, but they were really teachers for me, and i it was when I started to learn that You can, there are two ways to die in a war. You can die fast or you can die slow. And these men had been at war too long and it had fundamentally changed them and they no longer fit in at home and they didn't fit in there. Um, They were not bad people, but they were in, um, they had been in a lot of bad, uh, bad situations and it had changed them.
1: Talking to these men and starting to really see the complexity of their experience, plus talking to communist fighters from North Vietnam and people in South Vietnam as the U.S. soldiers left, all this changed her. She felt less sure of things that she used to feel sure of. Um, it
2: was, you know, as we used to chant at the demonstration, Ho, ho, Ho Chi Minh, NLF is going to win. One, two, three, four, we don't want your fucking war. Five, six, seven, eight, organize and smash the state.
1: But suddenly everything seemed more nuanced than that.
2: I know in my bones that I went to Vietnam with all the answers, and I left proud of my ability to understand the questions, to realize that there were, the war was... Although my basic opposition to the war never changed, I could see how many shades of gray, gray they were.
1: It wasn't just U.S. bad, North Vietnam good, or even war bad, peace good. I had
2: friends who were South Vietnamese who, you know, were, who hated the communists. And I could see what the war meant through their eyes. And I learned a lot from that.
1: But Laura Palmer still believed, or believed even more than ever, in the possibilities of objective reporting. She says the amount of lying and deception from government authorities actually helped her see the situation more neutrally.
2: When reporters hear lies from opposing sides, it makes it very easy to be objective because you know Neither the South Vietnamese nor the North Vietnamese, who were holding press conferences in Viet Cong every Saturday after the ceasefire, were telling the truth. Both sides were lying. Both sides were corrupt. Um, And, you know, each side would deny that they had had, had committed any ceasefire violations during the week.
1: In 1975, Saigon fell to the North Vietnamese. Most Americans frantically evacuated. But this whole time, in addition to the North and South Vietnamese and the U.S., there was another set of sides to the story. Not the governments, but the people. That's the part I can't stop thinking about. More than 3 million Vietnamese people, many of them civilians, died during this war. 58,000 U.S. fighters lost their lives. Palmer didn't have a problem reporting the facts. But she was aghast at the way the U.S. government in particular kept pushing this war, producing reasons to send more troops. The government sent so many people to their deaths, in spite of knowing it might be pointless.
2: I think I always will wonder and absolutely never be able to reconcile myself to uh, the reality that people knew this war was unwinnable, and they still sent fine young men to their death.
0: We believe that peace is at hand. It is inevitable that in a war of such complexity that there should be
1: uh, occasional
0: difficulties in reaching a final solution. But we believe that by far the longest part of the road has been traversed.
1: Laura Palmer went on to spend decades documenting stories of returning veterans and stories of families who lost loved ones to war. And she does see Vietnam as a victory for objective truth-telling.
2: Ultimately, the truth always wins out. Um, I deeply believe that. And while journalism is certainly imperfect in many ways and at many times, you know, ultimately... um, The truth about Vietnam uh, did come out, and the war was not winnable.
1: I see what she means, because journalism did have a lot of victories in Vietnam, exposed a lot of atrocities. But to me, it feels like it took so long and so many lives before some version of the truth won out. That doesn't mean I think I know the answers, just that the situation was truly complex. The public in the U.S. supported the war for a long time before it opposed the war. And all the while, lots of reporters were putting out daily reports that repeated propaganda from government press conferences. It's hard to say whether Vietnam coverage really was a victory for truth. That depends on where you're standing. The truths that were eventually exposed came too late for all the people who died. In any case, for Laura Palmer, serving the truth meant serving objectivity, exposing herself to all sides and to new perspectives, peeling back the layers until change finally came. And we needed people like her doing that hard work. Straight ahead, we returned to Carrie Grusin, who tried to get to Vietnam and never made it. Right now, for a quick moment, we want to ask for your support. This podcast is produced completely independently with the help of our Kickstarter supporters and other individual donors. It's like public radio, but without the government or private sponsorship, which means it is all you, right, Ramona?
0: Yes, you are the ones who pay for our studios, software, equipment, travel, living wages for the production team. And those fancy cuts of news tape you hear on the show, those are like 500 doll hairs apiece.
1: So really, every dollar that you give goes towards something that is totally necessary for the production of The View from Somewhere. And... Real talk, right now, we are definitely running out of money to get to the end of our season in 2020 and bring you all of the episodes we want to. You can help offset that with any amount. It all helps. We have super cool swag and lots of gratitude to give away. You can get a signed copy of the book, The View From Somewhere, uh, beautiful posters of Ida B. Wells and Marvell Cook. Go to our website, www.viewfromsomewhere.com and click on the donate button now. Alrighty, you like that public radio moment?
0: Yep, yep, yep.
1: (laughs) It's better than corporate underwriting. Now, back to our regularly scheduled program
0: People Power.
1: (laughs) That's going to work. Everyone's going to give so much money after we say that. I know. Carrie Grusin, the badass woman from the 1969 Wall Street Journal article who said objectivity is a myth, she came up in the same generation as Laura Palmer. But for her, objectivity never felt like the right frame. I read up on her and then flew to Miami to meet her in her apartment on the waterfront. There was a glittering blue ocean in the background, terracotta tile inside, and Carrie's bright blue eyes shining at me as we talked. She talks slowly and softly because of a disability. So I leaned in, looking closely into her eyes. You described yourself as stubborn. Um, and I can identify with that. Um, and I wonder if there are any instances that stand out to you where being stubborn posed a problem for you.
3: There are so many. If I were to go into them, it the rest of the about them.
1: There's a transcript of this on viewfromsomewhere.com if you'd like to follow along that way. As I mentioned, Carrie's parents were both journalists, and because of their work, she grew up all over the world. Growing up, objectivity and truth came up at the dinner table. I remember
3: long debates with my parents on precisely those issues because my father, of course, as a part of the times that objectivity was accursed. And I, in part because of my background, because I had been brought up in so many different cultures, I saw the world as a very complex place where cultures and histories interact to change your vision of reality. So I was much less sure of what was right and what was wrong, what was objective. I felt that subjectivity be determined to of the world, that you see the world through your own eyes.
1: Like Laura Palmer, Carrie was coming of age at the height of U.S. presence in Vietnam and civil rights. She reported for a summer on the civil rights movement in the South, then got that job out of college at the Raleigh News Observer, publicly opposing her own father on the question of objectivity. Then later in Boston, she had a series of journalism jobs, some mainstream, some alternative. But she always felt that being just an observer wasn't enough she decided to become what she calls a committed observer. If you're a committed observer, you have to take action,
3: I think. Because standing on the sidelines cannot be an option at a certain point, you are
1: compelled So she reported, but she also protested. And it was this role of committed observer who did not stay on the sidelines that drew her to head to Vietnam in 1974, after the ceasefire, before the evacuation. On her way, Carrie stopped in Hawaii. She planned to interview veterans returning from the war front. She met a Green Beret alone in his hotel room.
3: Because I am by nature a very trusting person. I have a very hard time imagining myself to be
1: in danger. During this interview, the soldier had a PTSD flashback, and he attacked Carrie, thinking she was a Viet Cong fighter.
3: So he strangled me. I was going to kill him. So he had to kill me first. So he strangled
1: me. Left me for dead. Her only memories of being strangled are what her mother pieced together later. The soldier had apparently dragged her into the street, where someone found her unconscious. By the time she was conscious again, she was back in New York. She had suffered an injury to her spinal cord that took away most of her mobility. She would never walk again. She had to relearn to talk, eat, and use her hands. The soft speech you hear is a result of what she calls her accident. And how did your accident influence your view of the war in Vietnam?
3: Well, I'm glad you said accident because that's also how I looked at It was an attack of a vicious. Attempts to be harm. it really was an accident. I felt we were both victims of the war, so it kind of vindicated how I felt about the
1: war. Mary eventually went back to work as a news assistant in the Times Miami bureau. And later she founded an organization, Thumbs Up International, that connects people of all abilities through athletics. As a result of her accident, her head is tilted to the side. She already believed in multiple truths. And now she literally had a different perspective, permanently. Her vision and physical position were changed by her experience.
3: I think my physical disability actually as a positive because it opens my eyes to a different perspective. Literacy. I started taking photographs of how I see the world and movie tilted. They have a lot to do with shadows because I love shadows of the interplay of light and dark. I can show you some Maybe if you'd like. Yeah.
1: Carrie Grusin never felt sure that there was one objective truth, and her travels and her accident and her disability all affirmed that. This feels identifiable to me. Like her, I grew up in a lot of privilege, and then I was exposed or exposed myself to more and more life experiences not my own. And I figured out that I was trans. The gender and body I walk through in the world now are different than where I started. And I think those changes have made me a better, more complicated storyteller, a committed observer, comfortable with change and ambiguity.
3: So there are no final answer. It's like life itself, a process. And when you stop, be open to the process, and open to the change, open to changing definitions. That's when things get bad and rough, and people get hurt. So I think you have to remain open. To change and progress. Because without progress and without change, there is death and finality and end and intolerance and conflict.
1: Some people understand objective journalism to be just about methodology that fairness and balance that Laura Palmer pursued in Vietnam. But objectivity also often suggests standing aside, being outside the story, finding the truth, getting to the bottom of things. As I was talking to Carrie Grusin, looking out at the bright blue ocean, I kept thinking about diving, how the deeper you go, the closer to the bottom, the less light there is, the more distortion. The ocean surrounds you. And you can get to the bottom, but you can't see everything there. There is not just one picture to be painted. Only glimpses. And maybe this is what journalism is. Diving in and seeking a story out of our limited view of the light. It's been really wonderful to talk to you. Wonderful talking to you.
3: I think we shall be speaking more. I hope we will be. hope oh, this is just the beginning of a conversation, a collaboration.
1: Agreed. Good. In some ways, I'm more confused than ever about truth and objectivity. But I know that when I look around, I'm swimming in a sea of subjectivity. I just have a million questions. I think about this Rainer Maria Rilke quote that I read when I was probably 15. Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves, like locked rooms and like books that are now written in a very foreign tongue. Do not now seek the answers, which cannot be given you because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Next time on The View From Somewhere. Objectivity is impossible.
2: And I don't think there's a newsman alive who really thinks that objectivity is the name of the game in the news media.
1: Ruben Salazar, another groundbreaking journalist who served the truth and gave his life for it. We'll be turning over the mic to producer Ramona Martinez for this special episode about a Chicano journalism hero. Stay tuned in, subscribe, tell your friends about us, keep asking those good questions. I'm Lewis Raven-Wallace and I am on Twitter at Lewis Pants. Also, don't forget to go to our website viewfromsomewhere.com to make a donation. You'll be part of this independent effort to change journalism, and you can get amazing posters of Ida B. Wells or Marvell Cook or Ruben Salazar by Billy Dee, who also designed our logo. And get a signed copy of my book, The View From Somewhere, where you can read more about Carrie Grusin and Vietnam War reporting. Thanks, as always, to producer Ramona
0: Martinez. Hey, Ramona, what you got? Hey, Louis. Our theme music is by Dogbotic. Additional music by Poddington Bear. Our distributor is Critical Frequency. Thanks to our genius editorial consultant on this episode, Carla Murphy. And thanks to WUNC for use of a studio. Check out viewfromsomewhere.com to donate. And you can also support us by reviewing us and giving us some stars in your podcast app. Talk to you in a few weeks. Live
1: the questions.